Let's open up our Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Chapter 9 of Romans begins and kind of brings about a, a slight shift in the focus of the book of Romans. In chapter 1 through 8, Paul spent a great deal of time trying to thoroughly convince us, and, and he has me, I'll speak for myself, about man's need for God and the glorious provision that we, he has made for us in Jesus Christ through faith in him, uh, and of course, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, in Romans 9 through 11, Paul's going to deal with the issue associated with the condition of Israel and the fact that God has not, I underscore not, forsaken his people, even though they had seemed to miss out on the appearing of the Messiah. So has God done away with his people? No. And to this question, Paul's going to give a thorough answer in the next three chapters, and so they're very important chapters. But I want to add this as far as the introduction. There is a segment of theology which we call replacement theology. And it's a great error, and it's a great mistake. And it came into the church because of anti-Semitism. Martin Luther, who I greatly love as a man of God, and uh, some of his books on the uh, systematic theology, some of the best that's ever been written. But there's one aspect about Martin Luther that I detest, and that's the fact that he was an anti-Semite. He hated the Jews. <laughs> but so did <laughs> most people. If you want to understand the hatred of the Jewish people, you have to read Ezekiel 36, 37, 38, and 39. It's there for a reason, okay? And I'm not even going to go into that tonight because it's just there. And when you see it, and it seems so unfounded, so illogical, why the people hate the Jews. And it's, if you ever want to watch a very interesting movie that was made, I believe, in 1946 or 47, just after World War II, it was made by Cary Grant. And it really took a lot of flack, but it was a great movie. It was called A Gentleman's Agreement. And it was made on this very subject because Kerry is not a Jew, he, play, he plays one in the movie as a journalist. He's trying to get in and he wants to see if there's any foundation of this. And so he gets in with these upper crust people, people who have money, and he starts finding out that there is this gentleman's agreement. That once they find out that he's just claiming to be a Jew, he's just claiming, he's not really one, doesn't look like one, doesn't even have the last name, of a common last name. Of course, neither do I. You know, many people, when they came to the United States, they changed their last name because of persecution. But that movie really gives you this idea of why the Jews were so, and are to this day, very detested. But God has never removed his hand. And so many who wrote systematic theologies, many of them throughout the history of the church, has given themselves over to this replacement theology. And what that means is that they believe that God had done away with Israel. Israel had their chance. The Jews had their chance. And they rejected the Messiah, so... Now the church is the new Israel. Totally wrong. Totally false. And Paul's going to drive this home. How they get that after reading what Paul says about God and his people. Now, Paul's going to state that being a Jew, I had a guy come to me one time. <coughs> he kind of came to this replacement theology, you know, he, idea. Because the Bible says in Christ there's neither Greek nor Jew nor male nor free men nor city. You know, we're all equal in Christ. And that's true. At the cross we are. There's no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved. It's all by faith. Jew or Gentile. To the Jew first, Jesus said, then to the Gentile. But to come to that conclusion, what profit is there, Paul said, in, in being a Jew? Well, much in every way, he said. Why? Because unto them were given the oracles of God. If it wasn't for the Jewish people, we wouldn't even have a Bible sitting in front of us today. You know, especially an Old Testament that we can trust. And the way that they went about that uh, would take a whole other hour for me to explain that, so we're not going to go into that. But it's very powerful, and this is really what, Je what Paul's going to spend the crux of the next three chapters explaining. You know, what is it about the Jews? Why is it that it looks like they're cursed, when in reality, God wanted to bless them, but there's a reason for that. So let's just jump into Romans 9, and we're going to start here in verse 1. I say the truth in Christ... I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, 
that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. At the end of chapter 8, Paul left us at this summit of glory, you know, assuring us that nothing could separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And I love that part of the, of the book of Romans in chapter 8. But Paul now starts off chapter 9 in somewhat of a somber kind of a tone, you know. He, he, he just like he just, it's, it's a, 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 a parallel sh shift. He just, boom, you know, he goes from that glorious thing of this is how much God loves us and we're all, and God's pouring and he's done it all for us. And then he comes to this. The reason for this paradigm shift really is because Paul now begins to consider his own people. He begins to think about them who seem to be separated from God, or God's love anyway. Those unbelieving Jews who had rejected the Messiah. Paul says, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. Paul makes a great emphasis of this sincereness of his heartfelt sorrow for his fellow Jews. He wants us to understand that he means it. It's not just something he's saying. This is something that bothered Paul to the, his very core and something that cannot be overstated. While proclaiming the goodness of the Lord in saying that, you know, in saving all mankind, Paul would inevitably be reminded all the time of his own people and that they were not enjoying the benefits of this good news, the gospel, that had been given to him. Because he was a Jew, and yet he was enjoying it. You can't ever forget that the New Testament, in the beginning, I've heard people say, well, you know, uh, the, you know Jews and Gentiles. Well, wait a minute, in the beginning, they were all Jews <laughs> in the New Testament. All the disciples, you know. It's not till later on that God began to draw them in. You know. Paul makes it even more stringent when he, when he goes on in verse 3. He says, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and to the service of God, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Some of your Bibles might, this isn't in my notes, I'm going to throw this in for free. Some of your Bibles might have the punctuation on this particular verse in five a little bit different. Why is that? Here's your little textual criticism study, okay? Punctuation matters. It's extremely important. It is not given to men to just willy-nilly place a comma anywhere you want because it matters. It changes everything, okay? Why is it changed in some? Because you'll find that certain Bibles adhere to a different text. I use the received text. I told you this when we started the study. I stick with the majority text. Why? It's the one that's been around the most. They don't call it the majority for nothing. I could give you a very extensive <laughs> educational, scholarly background for that, but we don't have time for that tonight. But that's what I use. It doesn't move the comma. When it's moved, they think that it pronounces Jesus as God more pronouncedly, okay? That, you know, let's read it again, and we just move the comma who is over all God, comma, blessed forever, amen. You see the difference? Because some of your Bibles, does anybody's Bible place the, the comma after God? Yes, one. So, listen, you're not helping God out because the Bible's very clear that Jesus Christ is God. All God, all man. Jesus said he was God. The Pharisees tried to stone him because he claimed to be God. We don't have to add a verse to it. That punctuation in the received text, in the majority text, is right where it needs to be. How did they determine? Because I'm telling you now, in the Hebrew and in the Greek, there are no periods and no commas. Did you know that? In the Hebrew, there's also no vowels. No vowels. And no J's. <laughs> yeah. So we have a lot of translation issues. So it's, it's a very in-depth study. So you just, this is why certain sects, uh, I'll throw the Jehovah Witnesses out uh, as an example. Uh, John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's what it should say in the received text. Of course, in the New World Translation, it says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Just one letter. Ah, makes all the difference in the world, though, doesn't it? Sure it does, because why? Well, they don't believe that Jesus was Jehovah. That's what the argument, and of course, I'm getting off, I digress a little bit, but 
you know, this is, my point is punctuation matters. Jesus said this, and I, I like what Jesus said about punctuation. Not one jot or tittle shall pass from the word till all be fulfilled. So those commas matter. And, and it even matters. Like I'll give you an example, one more and I'll move on. The three men on the cross. Remember the thief on the cross? He turns to Jesus. He said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He said, I tell you this day you shall be with me in paradise. Well, there's those that like to move the comma on that. Because those who believe in soul sleep don't like that. Soul sleep? What are you talking about, Doug? Well, Seventh-day Adventists are a great example of them. I'm not picking on them. I'm just saying this is a doctrinal error that they adhere to. It's called soul sleep. They believe when you die, your soul goes to the grave, and that's where you stay. You go into a, like, a, a suspended animation or something, and then you just wake up, which the Bible says to be present, you're being absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. So Ellen G. White came up with this doctrine, and they stick with it. It's wrong because Scripture says it's wrong. But they don't like that comment there. Why? Because it says, today you shall be with me in paradise, which means today, today, we're going to be feasting at the Father's table. Move that comma, and it makes all the difference in the world. I'm telling you today, comma, you shall be with me in paradise. You see the difference? Punctuation matters. I just threw it in there because there are some of your Bibles, and of course we have one here that does make a difference here in verse 5. You know, I like it the way it stands I can give you so many more verses that back up the deity of Jesus Christ. I don't have to move the comma on this one to do it, okay? So Paul <clears throat> could make no more profound declaration of his sorrow than to say that he wished himself. I mean, think about it. He wished himself to be accursed from Christ. That's a pretty stout statement. That's very strong. If it would mean the salvation of his kinsmen. And this is not just some dramatic metaphor that Paul is stating. He's not trying to just grab your attention. He means it. He means it. In wishing himself a curse for Christ for his brethren, Paul is reflecting the same heart that Moses was found when you look at Exodus 32, verse 31 and 32. I'm going to read it for you. Just take, write it down in your notes. And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, Oh, this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book, which thou hast written. So Moses even had this same heart that, look, you know, these are a stiff-necked people. they Jews, they just are, you know. But yet, that heart to see them one, to see them being justified in, in God, it's something that was in Moses. And, of course, reflected also in Jesus Christ in Galatians 3.13, when Christ said it says and christ hath redeemed us of course from the curse of the law being made a curse for us for it is written curses every man that hangeth on a tree so jesus was cursed he took all that for the for the children of Israel and for the gentiles he took it for all mankind so in order to get the full impact really of paul's statement you have to consider when when it came to the issue of ministry for paul the jews were his worst enemy keep that in mind he makes this statement, I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren's sake, if it would mean their salvation. He's saying that about a group of people who was his worst enemy. When he had come to ministry, they followed Paul from town to town, from city to city, and they beat him, they cursed him, they mocked him, they did everything they could to stop him. And yet his heart's desire was to have compassion and to see these people genuinely one to Christ. Some people believe that the purpose of the church, the church of Jesus Christ in general, well, let me rephrase this. Some people believe that the, that the purpose of the pastor of any given, you know, in the, in the body of Christ, I don't care what he, which church is, is to win people to Jesus Christ. That's partially true. You know, Paul writing to Timothy, he said, do the work of an evangelist. But Paul was also the one who wrote and said, he has set some in the church. First, evangelists, or apostles, evangelists, pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry. It is us as the collective, those people who are in the pew. It's our privilege, not duty, privilege to evangelize and to win people for Jesus Christ. Now think about it. Let's take Paul's mindset. Here's a, here's a guy who was longing and even considered, if it were possible, he said, I would wish myself a curse. I'd give up my own salvation if these people could be saved. And yet these were the people who had persecuted him. 
if we could get our fingers around that, you know, and really genuinely begin to share the gospel with people, you know, and so often we don't. Why is that? I, I, I really, there's, there's such a plethora of reasons we couldn't cover them all. Every person's different. I was sharing with uh, Pastor Dave this morning. I said, when, when I first came to the Lord, when I really got serious about my walk with Jesus Christ, after I was baptized in the Holy Spirit, I just asked for it. I received it by faith. Uh, no, I didn't get hit by a bolt of lightning. I didn't speak in tongues at that. I just received it by faith. Galatians chapter 3. I received you the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. It's a rhetorical question by hearing of faith. That's what I did. But it made all the difference in the world in my life. All of a sudden, I wanted to win everybody to the Lord. I told you my story about the map, you know. But that, that was a physical manifestation of it. That was my own flesh wanting to do it. But my heart's desire, and still is to this day, this has never diminished in my life, is to see people rise to the occasion to win people to Jesus Christ. There's been great periods of evangelism, and we want to call them revivals, and that's fine. But there's been great moments in church history when these huge things happen. Actually, there was one that went from about 78 to 85. And some of us sitting here might even be uh, the product of that. Um, but there was great evangelism going on at that time. And when, I mean, people would come to the door. Just, I remember an insurance man knocked on the door, me and my brother. <laughs> we just attacked him like he was fresh meat. Hey, come on in. We had no intention of buying insurance. I was giving him some. You know what I mean? I was giving him some. And, and, by the, and you know, it, so they would come in. I remember standing in Kmart and just turning around and, and starting a conversation. Next thing I know. We were standing there praying and just leading some guy to the Lord. It was just standing in line. I remember we weren't being obnoxious. We weren't being overly loud. We were even trying to, like, you know, huddle around. Me and my little brother, we kind of looked at ourselves as the double-barrel shotgun for God, you know, because we just, we just hit him with Scripture. I'd start, and he'd, we'd, like, tag-team each other. I'd, I'd start preaching, and he'd preach. But we got this guy. He wanted to accept the Lord, so we just got kind of real close and said, well, let's just say this prayer, you know. We were being all quiet, quiet, you know, in the middle of Kmart line. And then when we got done praying, I lifted up, and there was like this big ring of people standing around us and really was not trying to be, you know, that's another story. But, you know, the fact is we just had that desire. You know, why aren't we doing it? And it's not a have to. Listen, you don't have to. If you don't want to do what God has given you the ability and the privilege to do, then don't. But you'll never know the blessing that it is. And I'm not talking about cutting, cutting notches on your Bible. Because I've known guys like that. Well, I think I've led 423 people to the Lord. I've baptized 600. I couldn't tell you in 30 years how many people I've led to the Lord. I'm not keeping count. It's a get-to. I love doing it. love watching somebody's life change. And you get to be a part of that. That's glorious, man. That's, that's awesome. But let, but let me put it this way to you. Do you all know who ben, Penn and Teller are? You know, the magicians? Well, Penn is a devout atheist. And he's got a little video that he posted on uh, YouTube a long time ago. And somebody had directed me to it, so I watched it. And he was telling a story about after one of his concerts, I guess that's what you call it, this guy came up to him and had been a lifelong fan of his and told him, you know, how much he loved it, their magic and all this stuff, you know. But he then began to tell him, he says, but, you know, I, I, I can't leave right now without sharing something. I mean, I have a, I, I have a great concern for your soul. And this guy, Penn, he goes, you know, he said, any other time that's happened to me, he said, I just chew these guys up and spit them out. Because he considers himself an intellectual. He's too smart for to believe in God, you know. It's only because he's never ran into a real kid. But this guy, this guy fooled him. Because this guy wasn't some intellectual. This guy had a genuine love and care that he couldn't deny. And he even says it on the, on the, on the video. He says, you know, he said, this guy, this guy really cared about me. And he didn't even know me. But he was a fan of mine, and he still watched my stuff, even though he knew I was an atheist, but he cared. And he said, you know, he said, if I were a Christian, and this is what he says in the video, if I were a Christian, and I really believed that there was a heaven to gain, an eternity in heaven, or a hell to shun, if I really believed that was true, how bad would you have to hate somebody to not tell them? That's from an atheist. See, the world in their generation, Jesus said, are much wiser than the children of light because he understands it. And it's the truth. This is what we need to get to, gang. 
you know, we're so busy sometimes wanting to put people's in the pews that we lose sight of the fact that we need to be getting them into the kingdom. If we get them into the kingdom, the pews fill automatically. And except the Lord build the house, those that labor do it in vain. Listen, evangelism is a one-on-one thing. It's you guys, us, all of us, just our neighbors, our friends. Most of us have jobs. Now, I'm retired. I don't have the opportunity. Me and my wife was talking about this earlier. We don't have the opportunity. I'm not in that position where I'm around unbelievers. But when I was, <laughs> when I was, I loved it. You know, I worked at a grocery store one time as one of the managers. And, you know, I, I always had my Bible with me. Uh, they didn't have electronics back then, so I always carried my Bible. And I would sit in the break room. And I couldn't tell you over the five or six years that I worked there how many people I led, I led to the Lord. Uh, but it was several, you know, quite a few. And some of those people are pastoring now. I mean, they're, they're ministers. I'm not patting. I'm not saying, oh, you know. I'm just saying God will use anybody that, you know, that puts themselves out there. You know, taste and see, the Bible says, that the Lord is good. If you've ever went to a good restaurant with your spouse, and maybe you ordered something different, and you took a bite of that, and it was just a, oh, gosh, this was worth every 40, all the 40 bucks that I'm paying for it, or whatever. You say, hey, baby, taste this, man. T taste this. This is, man, this is awesome. This is good. That's how Jesus is in our life. Man, I love the Lord. I cannot understand somebody not getting that. I really don't. I have a hard time with that. What is there about Jesus that does not make you want to share that? Because eternity is real. You know, forgiveness is a good thing. You know, it's, it's, it's something that Paul wanted desperately for his own people, for the Jews. And there's a remnant that is saved. They are going to be. And eventually, it says that the whole nation of Israel will. They will look upon him whom they have pierced. And they will say, where received you these wounds? He will say, in the house of my friends. So that time's coming. But, you know, we need to concentrate. We need to pray about that, you know. Just be open to the leading of the Holy Spirit as far as when and where. Because it doesn't matter. You don't, you know, if you've if you got a job, you've got all kinds of people around you that probably doesn't know the Lord. You know, and I'm not saying be obnoxious, you know, because I've seen obnoxious Christians. And they drive more people away than they do lead them to it. But that doesn't mean, you know, here's an old saying, and I'm going to move on after this. Here's, there's an old saying, which I, years ago, I thought sounded wise. And I actually used it a few times, and then I realized how stupid this was. Preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. I've said it. I, I heard it one time, and it sounded great, because what it sounds like it's saying is that, like, your life ought to be a living testimony. Well, it should, but the Bible's very clear that faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And how shall they hear except they preach? And how shall they preach except they be sent? You know, Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. You know? And so we are sent into the world. It's our great commission. It's our privilege. And, and awesome. Uh, I don't even want to say it's not a responsibility. We often take it that way. Because I've heard people say, well, I just, I, just, I'm, I just can't talk to people about Jesus. Do you talk to them about sports? Do you talk to him about things that you love? Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Whatever's in the heart the most, this is what's going to come out of here. You couldn't shut me up about talking about Jesus for anything. I'm sure that when I was working, there was people like, man, here comes Doug. Wait a minute. Shh. Turn. Turn your head. Don't let him see you. Because don't even, don't even act like you're going to talk. Don't even say it. Don't even ask him what the weather is. Because he'll say, well, I don't know. But have you heard the word of God today? I mean, something about God's going to come out. I mean, why? Because that's who I know. That's where my joy is. That's where my treasure is. And I'm not saying, once again, it's no hallelujah to me. It's not an arrogant statement. It's just a fact. But I can't really imagine anybody being that way. So if we want to see genuine revival, we want to see real evangelism, we need to look at ourselves because that starts with each individual. And let's start winning people for Christ. Let's have the mindset that Paul did when he looked at his own people. You know, even when you see some of the first disciples coming, you know, Peter, you know, then he went and got Andrew, his brother. He went to his brother. You know, that was what happened in my family. It was my brother, then he kept me, and then my other brother, and we, and then pretty soon my whole family, you know. And, and some of your testimonies are probably just the same way. But now, in this time that we're living in, man, we need it more than ever. So Paul has this deep, genuine, heartfelt concern and desire to see Israel come to the Lord. Verse 6, not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. 
neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh. These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall con or have a son. So it's not that the word of God had taken no effect. Paul thinks that someone looking at Israel might very well say, well, God's word certainly didn't profit them any, you know, because it looks like they've been forsaken. It does. But Paul doesn't want us to come to that conclusion. You know, some people just have this wrong idea because they think that Israel somehow, instead of being blessed, they've been cursed, and so somehow God has turned away from them. Paul, you know, answers that particular question or that type of thinking by stating that they are not all Israel that which are of Israel. So it's not the religious Israelite, those who are trying to keep the law that Paul's talking about, or the blood-born Israelite, the unbelieving Jews, but those who have embraced the promise of the Messiah, these are the children of the promise. And so the children of promise are counted as the seed, Paul says. So Paul demonstrates this by pointing out that, that merely being the descendant of Abraham saves nobody. Because that's the way the Jews are. We are the children. Remember they told Jesus, we're the sons of Abraham. Jesus said, if you were of Abraham's children, you, was, you, know, you would be glad to see my day. For Abraham sought to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Well, you're not even 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? I tell you before Abraham was, I am, he said. But just being the seed of Abraham wasn't enough. And Paul makes that clear. It's not being the children of the flesh that, that works something before God, but only being children of the promise. For example, Ishmael was just as much a son of Abraham as Isaac. He was just as much a son. But Ishmael was the son according to the flesh. Remember how he came about, right? He, you know, Sarah? Because we always want to think of the good things of Sarah and Abraham. You know, remember the song? Father Abraham had many sons, you know. And we sing all that. Think about this situation for a minute. God had promised Abraham, even in his old age, that, that he was going to have a son. Sarah heard it. She laughed. She was almost 100 years old herself. She's going, seriously? She didn't believe it. Did not embrace it. So they waited and waited on the promise of God. And finally, they're just getting older. Sarah says, hey, I got an idea. How about you take my handmaiden and you go have sex with her and see if you can have a baby with her. Now, I know we read that and people say, and I've heard, I actually heard of one commentator who was a very young guy who really didn't understand the Jewish mindset. And he says, well, back then this was, this was kind of, there's really nothing bad in this. No, that's called adultery and fornication. <laughs> it was then and it is now. Absolutely it was wrong. It was absolutely wrong. What Sarah did was force adultery upon her own husband. And what happened? Well, she did get pregnant, you know, and she brought forth Ishmael. And the Bible says this was a son according to the flesh because the works of the flesh are manifest. Galatians 5, you know, 19, which are these, adultery, fornication, and so on and so forth. So, yeah, it was wrong. But he was just as much a son, only of the flesh. Isaac was the son according to promise. Thus was one of the heirs of God's covenant, or Isaac was, uh, of salvation, and, and uh, one was not. So God picked one and not the other. Look at verse 10. He says, not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to the election, might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth, it was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Interesting passage. So Paul gives Jacob and Esau as another example of the fact that, uh, that promise is more important than a natural relationship. God's promise is more important than that. He said our father Isaac, you know, he pointed to him. God's choice between Ishmael and Isaac seems logical to me. It seems logical. I, could, I can see why God picked 
Isaac. Why? Because he was, he was a promised one. You know, God said he was going to, and Ishmael was, was brought about by sin. And, and the mess that you see in the Middle East is still going on today because of it. Okay? That's what sin does. It brings about problems. But it's a little harder to understand why God chose Jacob to be the heir of his covenant of salvation instead of Esau. That's a little harder. We might not understand it easily, but God's choice is always just and it's always valid. Not yet being born, having done no good or evil, he says, these two. Paul points out that God's choice was not based upon the performance of Jacob or Esau. Had nothing to do with that. The choice was made before they were even born. That the purpose of God according to election might stand. You'll notice he says, not of works, but of him that calleth. So if you take a note, underline not of works. In order that we don't come to the wrong conclusion that God chose G Jacob over Esau uh, because he knew of their works you know, beforehand. Paul goes out and points out that it's not of worth. It just had nothing to do with that. Instead, the reason for choosing was found in him, that is in God, who calls. It's his simple right to do so. In stating that God hated Esau, it's imperative that we understand that this hatred was not only in regarding to, was, was only in regarding to, or excuse me, was only in regards to the inheriting of the covenant and not in regard to blessing. And I think that's important because you can see all the way through the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, if you're taking notes, just write down Genesis 33, 8 through 16, and you'll see that uh, Esau was, was blessed. He was actually blessed. So it had nothing to do with that inheritance. It was only in the inheritance of the covenant that God was going to make with his people. This was the only thing. I'll give you a quote from a very, very uh, famous pastor, or a pastor and preacher, of course, Charles Spurgeon. And when the story was told, a woman came to Charles Spurgeon one time after he taught through this segment. And here's what she said. She says, I cannot understand why God could say that he hated Esau. I can't understand that. To that, Spurgeon replied, that is not my difficult, madam. That's not my difficulty. My trouble is understanding how God could love Jacob. See, I, I, I see the same thing. It doesn't bother me that God would hate us. Why? Look in the mirror. Check your own heart. See, we're recipients of God's blessing. We're recipients of God's grace and of his mercy because we earned it? Not hardly. <laughs> because we deserve it? No. No, because God loves. God loves you. Why? Because there's something special about you? <laughs> Once again, be honest with yourself, man. You ain't got to spill your guts here. We know. I know. Why? Because I'm a man. I'm the same way. I have the same problems. But God loves me anyway. So I don't have a problem with the fact that God could hate somebody. I have a problem why he would love them. Because <laughs> there's nothing lovely in mankind. Watch the world scene. Look at the heinous crimes and the inhumanity demand that we see on a regular basis. And always have, though. And God still loves us, you know. So our greatest error is considering the choices of God when we're thinking about that, is to think that God chooses for arbitrary reasons, and he doesn't. We not, may not be able to fathom God's reasons for choosing and, and that his reasons are his alone and for his own purposes. I mean, it, it's only something that he knows, you know. His choices are not capricious. He has a plan and he has a reason. And so often, you know, we want to question those things because it doesn't fit with my finite understanding. But God's infinite. Paul goes on in verse 14. He says, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Because that's the conclusion some's going to say. They're going to say, well, that doesn't seem right. Paul says, God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will, sh I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Is there unrighteousness with God? Paul is emphatic. He says straight up, God forbid. No, not hardly. Remember that mercy, mercy is not getting what we do deserve. That's what mercy is, okay? It's not getting what we do deserve. 
God is never less than fair with anyone. Never less than fair. But he is fully, and he fully reserves the right to be more than fair with individuals as he chooses. And I'm good with that. I've watched God bless people, and I'm going, man, I don't get that. I don't get it. But then I look in the mirror and I go, man, I don't get that either. You know? So, why? I said a long time ago, I said, man, if I were God dealing with me, I'd have killed me a long time ago. I wouldn't tolerate it. What's wrong with this man? You know? But yet God uses us anyway. So he's going to have mercy on him, and he blesses some more, and he blesses some less. And I, I have no idea why, but I'm good with it because I know God is altogether fair. God is altogether right when he does anything. Jesus exemplified this right of God. Uh, in the parable of the landowner found in Matthew 28, I want you to turn here because I want to read this story for you. And I want to give you just a little bit of insight when it comes to parables. So when you're reading your Bible, one thing that is never really pointed out, and, and it's unfortunate, that when people are first beginning to learn how to read the Word of God and how to study, one of the things that is always probably never even mentioned is how to read a parable. There's two types of parables in the Bible, okay? Now, it's not going to tell you this, but there, I'm telling you this is what it is. Theologically, this is what it is. There are parables of comparison, but there are also compar uh, parables of contrast. Not every parable that Jesus told was a comparison with heaven. Some were contrasting. And so, so, so often, you know, we will take a contrasting parable and make it into a comparator. A perfect one is, is the one of the unrighteous judge. You know the parable. So the woman comes and, and begging and going over and over and over because the unrighteous judge, finally he gets tired of hearing it. And he grants her a wish because he's, he's tired. Now, now think about that. Now, I've heard preachers say, this is why you got to keep coming to God and pounding on, pounding on the throne doors. I'm going, so God's unrighteous? Paul just told us, is there any unrighteousness with God? The answer is rhetorical. The answer is what? No. So how could the unrighteous judge be a comparator of God? It couldn't be. It's a contrast. The woman came complaining and complaining. Finally, he got tired of listening. Does God ever get tired of listening to us? No. <laughs> See, our God is so different than that. He's loving. He's accepting. Come boldly, he says, because of Jesus Christ, unto the throne of grace. Come boldly. We stand by timid. I'm unworthy, unworthy, I'm not worthy. Yes, you are. Not because of you, because of Jesus Christ. So there's parables of contrast, parables of comparison. So Jesus tells this parable. It's a great parable. But it illustrates what we're talking about as far as God's ability to choose and to do what he wants and be right in doing it. Look at this. Verse 1, he says, For the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is a householder, which went out early in the morning to hire laborers into his vineyard. And when they had agreed with the laborers for a penny a day, that's some cheap labor there, man. A penny a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. Probably had a sign saying, we'll work for food. <laughs> you know, and so they're standing idle. And he said unto them, go ye into the vineyard, whatsoever is right I will give you. And they went their way. Again, he went about the sixth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing idle and said unto them, Why stand ye here idle all day? And they said unto him, Because no man has hired us. He saith unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right, that shall ye receive. So when evening was come, the Lord of the vineyard said unto his steward, Call all the laborers and give them their hire, beginning from the last unto the first. I love this parable. And when they came and were hired about the 11th hour, they received every man a penny. But when the first came, they supposed that Jay should have received more. And likewise received every man a penny. And when they received it, they murmured against the good man of the house, saying, These last have wrought but one hour, and thou hast made them equal unto us which have borne the burden of the heat of the day. But he answered and said, uh, or answered one of them and said, Friend, I do thee no wrong. 
Did not thou agree with me for a penny? Take that is thine and go thy way. I will give unto this last even as unto thee. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with what is mine? Is thine eye evil because I'm good? So the last shall be first and the first shall be last. For many be called, but few are chosen. I love that parable. What's that mean? God's an equal opportunity giver. That's what it means. It's not how you start. It's how you finish. But everybody gets paid the same. You know, our salvation, so God is so equal. There's no big eyes and no little U's in, in the church. There shouldn't be anyway. One of the things I always loved about the church that I got to pastor was I said, I used to tell the people all the time, I love this church because there's very little distance between the pulpit and the pew. I just think that's the way that God wanted us to be. I see it in the scriptures, you know. Why? God uses people. He doesn't use special people. Just, ooh, you're a, you know, you got a, you're a pastor. Ooh, you must have a halo. <laughs> oh, boy, I know too many of them. I was one for 30 years. I'm telling you, it's not the case. The same way as you have people sitting in the pew who are just as on fire for the Lord as some pastors or elders or deacons. We're all one in Christ. Do we hold different offices? Sure, there's differences of administration, but the same spirit. So we all have different things that God's called us to do, but we're still people. Just because a man stands at the pulpit doesn't make him more holy than you. Doesn't mean that he has more access. It's just like when, when prayer, people would come to me and go, Pastor, will you pray for me? I say, absolutely, I'll pray for you. But have you prayed for yourself? I was talking with one of our pastors here, you know, and I said, isn't it amazing that James says, if any be sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church, anointing him with oil. And how few times I ever had that happen. But when I did see it happen, I saw healings. I had a woman come to me this years ago, and I was just a young pastor. I was only in my early 20s. And this lady came to me, and here she had had a, an issue, some sort of female issue where she bled. And it just wouldn't stop. It was not unlike the story in the Bible, but hers wasn't for 17 years, but it had been for like 10. And she came to me, and I was an assistant pastor actually at the time, and me and the pastor, and she said, the Lord told me I need to come forward and have you guys anoint me and, and pray for me. We did. Next day, she called us up. She goes, hey, this is the first time it, it stopped. And, it was, and she was healed permanently after that. You know, but why? Because we were holy men of God? No, I knew my pastor, and he knew me. <laughs> we were men who just loved Jesus. It was her faith because she was obedient to the Word of God. You know? So if you're sick, if you have a problem, you need prayer, ask. Ask. You have not because you ask not sometimes. You ask and have not sometimes because you ask amiss. Don't ask amiss. You know, if you're sick, God wants to, he wants to, he wants you to pray. He wants you to come forward, but he wants you to add, come forward. You know, it's not a have to, it's a get to, you know. So just simple things like that, though, is all I'm trying to get through. It's just, you know, we often are not, we don't do what the Word of God says to do. And it could be your benefit, you know. So anyway, in this parable, this is, this is, we're all on level playing field. That's really what the thing is. And this is what Paul's trying to get across. Verse 14, take that, no, I already did that one, sorry. So we're treading, is what I wanted to say, on, on dangerous ground when we regard God's mercy towards us as our right. That's a, that's a, that's a dangerous ground, to think that it's your right. If God is obliged to show mercy, then it's not mercy. It's obligation. Remember, mercy is getting what you do or don't deserve. I mean, you're not getting what you do deserve. Mercy is a whole other issue. Grace is, grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve, okay? So it's never wrong. A person is never wrong if they don't show mercy. And I said this one time, and some people have a problem with it. Now think about it. You know, this is where some governors have gotten, you know, ridiculed because a man will be on death row for doing a heinous crime, killing some innocent. I'll give you one great example is when George Bush the Jr. was um, governor of Texas. There was a young lady uh, who in her early 20s had committed a heinous crime, had taken a pickaxe and had killed this man. It was a drug thing. It was just murderous. It was just murderous and it was gruesome and uh, one of the worst crimes that they had seen. Well, when she was in the holding, actually going to trial, uh, she had gotten saved. And it was a radical conversion. It was genuine. I worked in a prison, I'm telling you. I know there's jailhouse conversion, but this woman was genuinely saved. And she was on death row for many, many years. And 
was a great uh, saint of God. She was. And people began to petition the governor to overturn her, con not her conviction, but her execution. And George, now get him, keep this in mind, they were both Christians. George Bush is a Christian, the younger one. I don't know about the older one, but his, but his son definitely is. And the woman who was going to be executed was a Christian. And yet George would not, he wouldn't remove it. And I heard many a pastor who really ridiculed him for that. And I said, wait a minute. <laughs> Even she said, when the stay wasn't given, what's God's will, you know? George isn't in the wrong. No man is ever wrong for not showing mercy because that mercy, mercy has to be shown upon somebody who deserves what they're about to get. Do you understand? There's a vast difference. This is what makes God's mercy towards us so much more glorious because we are worthy of death. We are worthy. There's only one thing that mankind is worthy of, and that's death, and that's an eternity separated from God. That's what, we're, that's what, we're, that's what we deserve. But God gives us something so much better. He, he gives, we don't get that. He gives us mercy. But you can't ever say that if somebody doesn't show mercy that they're wrong. No, because mercy is only given to people who deserve what they're about to get. So it's one of those little conundrums that people have a hard time with. Verse 17. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, for even this same purpose I have raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout the, all the earth. Therefore he hath mercy upon whom he will have mercy, and whom he hardeneth, he hardeneth. God allowed the Pharaoh of Moses' day to rise to power that God might show his strength and judgment against him, therefore glorifying himself. Sometimes God will glorify himself through showing mercy. Sometimes he will glorify himself through a man's hardness. It's really that simple. Pharaoh was willingly hard-hearted, and I want you to get that. When you read that story, he was willingly hard-hearted. He wasn't a nice guy. We should never think that God persuaded Pharaoh unwillingly or hardened a kind-hearted Pharaoh. It's not what happened. In hardening of the heart of Pharaoh, God simply allowed his heart to, or to pursue its natural inclination. That's all he did. He simply allowed him to do it, you know, because he was already given that. And we know that because Pharaoh said it, of, you know, it was said of Pharaoh that he hardened his own heart. And you can write these down if you want to, or you can take them off the note sheet on the, on, online. Uh, but look at Exodus 7, 13, 22, uh, 8, 15, 8, 19, 8, 32, 9, 7, and 9, 34. That proved that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. This was something that he, God just simply allowed him to do what he wanted to do. And sometimes God does that. A person will kick against the pricks so long that finally the Lord will just give them over to what it is they already want to do. It's not that God is rejecting you. They're just giving over. He just lets you, okay. You know, we'll see what happens. You know, wilt thou say then unto me, why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O oh man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of one lump to make one vessel unto honor, another unto dishonor? Paul says some people are going to say, Why does he yet find fault? Paul imagines someone asking, If it's all a matter of God's choice, then how can God find fault with me? How can anyone be against the choice of God? Paul replies by showing how disrespectful such a question is. You know, does not the potter have power over the clay of one lump to make one unto honor, one unto dishonor? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, why hast thou made me thus? If God says he chooses and if God says that we are responsible before him, who are we, Paul says, to question God? Does not God have the right as any creator over his creation. And it's the question's rhetorical. The answer is obviously yes. He does have that right. It's God. His ways are not our ways. His ways are beyond our finding out. God has revealed to us what we need to know, and he's given it to us clearly in the word of God. But the why he does certain things, sometimes we don't know because he is infinite. We're finite. We can't grasp it, you know. But I can tell you this, it's absolutely fair. I've heard people say, well, what about people that never heard the gospel and then they're going to wind up on judgment day? I said, well, uh, we covered that. Go back and read the <laughs> Romans, you know, 1 and 2. But here's what I've always told them. I said, I don't know, really, to be honest, what the full thing is because I know God. One thing I know about God is that he's fair, 
And if we got to stand there and watch people being judged, here's what we'd walk away saying. Man, that was fair. Wow. That was the most, I never saw that coming. That was the fairest thing I've ever seen. Why? Because God's fair. He knows. Because he knows all things. He judges that way. So, what if God, he says, verse 22, willing to show his wrath. And if you take a notes, I want you to underline that. What if? What if? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted for destruction? And that he might make it known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he hath for prepared unto glory. Even us, whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. I was teaching on the issue of predestination one time. And I had some, uh, just one lady in, in, the, in the fellowship who really just had a hard time with that. You know. And I said, look. Why does God choose us? I don't know. But I'm just glad he chose me. You know, I'm glad. I'm, I'm embracing it. But here's what you want to think. God bases those things upon his foreknowledge. Why? God knows everything. It's sovereignty. You know, we covered this a long time ago. It's God's sovereignty. Get your fingers around it. God is in control of everything, but he knows everything, and he knew it long before. I mean, if you ever want to question something, you know, you know how blessed you are of God. You know how much God loves you. Think about this. Remember every rotten thing you've ever done? Probably not every rotten thing, but I bet you remember a lot. But keep this in mind. Long before you ever did it, God knew you were going to do it. And he chose you anyway. And he blesses you anyway. And do you think, you think that you've made every mistake in this life? You think you've sinned every sin that you're ever going to sin? You really believe that? No, you don't believe that because you know you. You know you better than you or better than anybody else, and I know me better than you do, you know? And we talked about this before, but God knows us better than anyone, and he blesses us. He loves us. Listen, it's not that he condones wrongdoing. It's not that he condones sin. God loves you. Why? Because you've put your faith in his son, because you're trusting in what Jesus has done, and because you're justified by him. God loves you, and he honors that. And you're his. You're, you're an heir, man. Or what they used to say, you're a king's kid, you know. But it's true. There's great privilege in that, you know, a great privilege in that. And that gives me great hope. So what if? Well, again, the same principle Paul's laying out here, dealing with Pharaoh, uh, is, is repeated. So if God chooses to glorify himself through letting people go their own way and letting their, uh, them righteously receive his wrath, so as to make his power known, who could oppose him? As well, if God desires to be more than fair with others by showing them his mercy, who could oppose him? If God wants to show mercy on the Gentiles as well as the Jews and never be less than fair with either one, who can oppose him? It's God. God knows what he's doing. So verse 25, it says, And he saith in Hosea, I will call them my people, which were not my people, and her beloved, which were not beloved. And it shall come to pass in that place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. Paul here is quoting Hosea 1.10 and 2.23. i just read them for you. You can take note of it. In verse 10, he says, Yet a number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered. And it shall come to pass that in that place where it is said unto them, you are not my people, there it shall be said unto them, you are the sons of the living God. So this is what Paul's quoting. You know, God promised a long time ago that Israel would have a remnant. There was going to be a remnant saved. But it would always be based upon faith, the same as it is with the Gentiles. God has always saved by faith. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So it's always been about those things. It's never been about works. It's never been about God demanding something of you, and then if you don't do it, you know, if this is going to be the, the, the penalty for it. It's really never been about that. God has always desired that loving relationship with his people. So in verse 27, Paul says, Isaiah also crieth concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sands of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. 
for he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, except the Lord of Sabbath be, had left us a seed, we should have been of Sodom and been made like unto Gomorrah. So Isaiah declares that God's right to choose a remnant from among Israel for salvation. But we must always remember that God chooses, once again, based upon that knowledge, that foreknowledge. He knew that there would be some, that remnant, who would put faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, he says we become like Sodom. Sodom and Gomorrah were completely destroyed in judgment. They were completely done away with. So the quotation that Paul is using here is from Isaiah 1.9. And it shows that even as bad as Judah's sin was, be, you know, because of their unbelief at the time, it could, have been more, it could have been worse than what it was. It was only by the mercy of God that they survived at all. But Sodom and Gomorrah, on the other hand, they were totally destroyed. Not even a small remnant was left. Thus we see in this verse that even in the midst of judgment, God shows mercy to Judah. He will have mercy upon whom he will have mercy, and he will have judgment upon whom he will have judgment. But it's in God's righteous knowledge that he makes those calls. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have obtained to righteousness? Even the righteousness which is of faith? But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, have not obtained to the law of righteousness? Hmm. By all appearances, the Gentiles had I guess really shown no inclination is the best way to put it in pursuing righteousness or in obtaining it. The Jews, on the other hand, Paul said had a zeal for God, and they still do. You know, they have a zeal for God. He said it's not according to knowledge, but they went about trying to establish their own righteousness by keeping the law, by doing it that way. And so it set them apart. Wherefore, Paul says, how come? Because they sought it not by faith but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Faith alone. Why did the Gentiles find righteousness when the Jews did not? Because the Gentiles pursued the righteousness of faith. Okay, And the Jews pursued the law of righteousness, the law of righteousness. The Gentiles were, who were saved, God uh, came to faith, receiving God's righteousness. The Jews, on the other hand, who seemed to be cast off from God, tried to justify themselves before God by performing the works according to the law of righteousness. Thus, Paul emphasizes why Israel seems to be cast off from God's goodness and righteousness is because they just didn't seek it by faith. They didn't come to the Messiah. God had made this provision, and this provision was only in one. One of the scriptures that we read this morning was Isaiah 12. And go back and read that slowly again. Because keep in mind, Isaiah was a prophet. So most of what Isaiah said was prophetic. He was a prophet of Israel. And in Isaiah 12, he talks about, you know, though you were angry with me, Yet now I'm blessed. Well, that's only in the Messiah. Only in the person of Jesus Christ is the wrath of God taken away. See, it's only about Jesus Christ. It's always been about Jesus Christ. The whole thing about the Messiah has been from the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Malachi. And that promise of God's righteousness, of his justification, of his sanctification, all the things that he pours out upon us because we've been made joint heirs with him who came and did all the things that were required. And he took care of it for us. But it says they stumbled at it. The Jews were off, or offended at the notion, and I want you to get this. He said they didn't receive it because they, they stumbled at this stumbling stone. I've laid in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. And whosoever, whosoever believes on him will not be ashamed. The Jews were offended at the notion that the works of their hands in trying to please God and gain his favor would not be accepted. See, God will not accept the works of your hands. You've got to understand this. Even when they were building the temple, when they would build an altar, go back and check it out. They were not allowed to use hammer or chisel. They had to use nothing but stones that they found on the ground in order to build the altar. 
because the altar would carry the blood of the lambs that were being slain. That was a forerunner, a picture of him who was to come and die for us all. But it's a signification of the fact that God would not allow any works of our hands. It's not us and Jesus doing anything. It's only Jesus. He's done it all. He's the one who said it is finished. We could never have said it's even begun, let alone it is finished. Only Jesus could say it was finished. So when we're going about trying to establish some favor with God by doing anything, I don't care what it is, even if it's a good thing, you're taking away from some of that of what Jesus did upon the cross. We have to come to that conclusion and to that place of, of understanding where Jesus is all sufficient. Everything he did on the cross was totally sufficient. But so often it's not the case with so many people. They stumble at the stumbling stone. You look at that word there in verse 33. It says, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. That word offense in the Greek is the word scandalon. And it means scandal. It's where we get the word scandal from. So anybody, the Jews were offended at the notion that the works of their hands uh, would not be accepted, you know, to gain his favor. Thus they looked at the pursuance of righteousness by faith apart from works as offensive. It was scandalous. What? You, what do you mean? You're not, going to, you're not going to do things. You're not going to work for God. Well, it's got nothing to do with it. I like doing things for the Lord. The difference is I'm doing it by faith. And even if I fail at it, I know that he's not holding it against me. They, they stumble at that. Why? It's scandalous. I'm here to tell you tonight, you know, there's a lot of Christians who stumble at it. They still, listen, there's so many people today who mix grace and works. They do. They just don't know they do it. They don't hear it because it's so subtle. What must I do? You know, We'll read passages and they'll say, well, if you want to get closer to God, here's what you need to do. As soon as you hear that, that ought to spark something in you. Here's what you need to do. Once the, but James, the half-brother of Jesus, said a very, very nice thing, a very simple thing. Draw nigh unto the Lord, and he will draw nigh unto you. How do you do that? We're doing it. <laughs> we are doing it. We're doing it every time we crack the word. We're doing it when we go to prayer. We're doing That's drawing nigh to the Lord. It's not doing anything. That's just being. That's who you are, you know. We're, that's who we are in Christ. The blessing is, is having our Father who has poured out so much of his love, his mercy, his grace, through Jesus Christ who lived for us, died for us, was resurrected for us, stands at the right hand of the Father making intercessions for us. You can't go wrong. If God be for us, who can be against us? Paul finishes up this chapter. He says, as it's written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. It's not a shameful thing to put your trust in one who was able to do all that was required. It's foolishness, on the other hand, to think that you can add anything to that. You can't do anything that's going to make God love you anymore. You can't keep enough law. You can't keep enough rules. You can't do enough. You can't sweep the church enough. You can't wash enough cars or whatever, whatever that thing might be that you're doing. Maybe even at work, you know, you're going a little extra mile because you want that little pat on it. Maybe you think God's going, well, listen, God's blessing you. Paul said, you want to work? Strive to enter into the rest. He that is in faith has ceased from his own works, Paul said, and he's now trusting in the works of one who was righteous, one who was able to do it. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have good works. Faith without works is what? It's dead being alone. The difference being is we're not driven by works. Our works come supernaturally. They come naturally. They flow. You know, it's just something we enjoy doing. It's a get to, not a have to. And anytime you feel that something's a have to, you know it ain't God. It's just that simple. Anytime somebody lays a guilt trip on you, okay, about doing anything, how, how, well, you know, you'd really understand, you'd really probably be resting in the blessings of God a little bit more if you just tried harder. You did a little more. I mean, it's, come on. That's not the Lord, man. Jesus says, I've done it all. Here, enter into the rest. It's so cool because Jesus, his very person, you know, it says he was the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the rest. He is to all those who have labored you know, 
Nobody understands laboring more than the Jews. They really do. It's unfortunate they want to stay that way. You know, give me more rules. Give me more regulation. You know, tell me what to do. Jesus said, I've already done it. Just accept it. You talk about Christmas gift. Oh, my gosh. There's a gift that we can give to people. Let's give them the gift of salvation. Let's preach Jesus Christ, the best gift that was ever given to all mankind. All mankind. What a cool thing when you can tell somebody, do you realize that you have been forgiven? I mean, keep this in mind, gang. Every person has already been forgiven. That doesn't make them saved. If they've already been forgiven. Jesus was on the cross, and I'm going to close with this. And before he said tostelestai, he said, Lord, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, listen, I've, I've heard a preacher one time talking about the people, the centurions and those who had just nailed him to the cross, and how Jesus pronounced this for forgiveness upon him. Ooh. Well, did it apply to them? Yes, it did. But when Jesus said, Father, forgive them, he talked about from Adam to anybody who would be to the end of time until he came again, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And when Jesus prays and he asked the Father anything, you better believe it was answered. And that's when he said, Tostelestai, it is finished. You know, that's good news. That's the gospel. That's what we need to share. Let's go to prayer. Father, we do love you and we do thank you. And Lord, we are, so, we are just completely overwhelmed by your love and your mercy. And you're just your lavish love upon us, Lord Father. Not that we could ever deserve anything, but we are so thankful and so uh, gracious and just overjoyed to receive it. So we ask that you would bless these who are here tonight, Lord Father, who have put their faith and trust in you, and they just love your word, and they love you. And those listening by radio, Father, we ask that you would bless them also, that they would come to know Jesus Christ in a much more intimate way. And Lord Father, we just thank you once again. In Jesus' name, amen. Any questions?